0: And again, across your church, so good to be with you this morning. Would you please pray with me as we open up our time in God's Word? And Father, now we come before you in your Word, and we ask that you would intersect your Word with our hearts and our lives, that we would be more like your Son, Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, what do you hate? What do you hate? There's some things I hate, some things God hates. I have a list of kind of silly things I hate, like I hate tuna fish. Can't stand it. Won't get near it. I hate below zero days, which thankfully we haven't had a lot of. I hate waiting in line for a very long time. I hate loud noises. And maybe hate's a strong word, but as many of you know, I'm not very fond of cats. (laughs) But then I have a serious list of things I hate. I hate cancer. I hate abuse. I hate anxiety. I hate senseless violence. We all have lists of things that we hate. But here's the thing. Regardless of what I hate and regardless of what you hate, it's nothing compared to the way that God hates the sin of pride. He hates it. Proverbs tells us that. And if there's one thing that will hinder all that God wants to do in our life, it's this prideful self-reliance and self-dependence that says, I don't need God. According to all we've seen so far going through the book of James in this study, we see that it's pride that always brings about brokenness or double-mindedness. Pride is behind every sin, this sense of self-reliance, and self dependence. And if we are gonna live lives of wholeness, we must pay attention to what James gives us today. So, we're in a series called Becoming Whole, where we're studying the book of James. And the title for the series comes from the fact that James wants us to be whole people. And early on in the chapter, we saw that he gives a description of brokenness, the opposite of wholeness. And that was like to be double minded, to live one way that is the world's way, and to live another way that is God's way, and to be two-faced or two-souled or two different people. And James longs for us as God longs for us to be people who are whole. So as we look at our quest for wholeness this morning, we're going to look at how James attacks the source of brokenness, and that is pride. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to James chapter 3. Looking at verse 13, if you're using a Bible in our worship center, I'll be on page 979. If you're new to the Bible and you're turning to the right, go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, go past 1st, 2nd Timothy, and then right after the book of Hebrews, you'll find James. And this is the NIV translation that I'm using. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3 in the book of James. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James's antidote for a prideful heart is humility that comes from wisdom. This whole letter is a letter written to foolish Christians and foolish churches who've lost their way. And unfortunately, we all place ourselves at one time or another in that same place. And if we want to fix our behaviors, if we want to fix our actions, if we want to fix our words, if we want to fix our habits, we have to deal with our heart. We must reorient our hearts towards humble wisdom. When things go wrong in our lives or things go wrong in the world, we all tend to look for the quick fix. We want to fix it right away and move on. We look for actions that will fix everything. But here we see that James's conviction is that the outward actions that flow out of us flow from a humble, wise heart. And our hearts have to go through a process of being made whole. And processes take time. Jesus agrees and back James 100% in this, as we saw last week and see here in Luke chapter 6, 45, where he says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So if we want to address our words or address our actions, we have to store up good in our heart. We have to address the heart first. That's the only way we address outward behavior. My youth pastor's wife, growing up by this youth pastor, and his wife was named Mary. And I hung out at their house quite a bit. And they had four kids at the time, and things got a little crazy at times and when the kids would kind of argue and go back and forth Mary had this phrase that always stuck out to me when a kid would snap at another kid or do something that was wrong and she would say you know what it sounds like you need to get your heart right sounds like you need to get your heart right I think we all need to get our hearts right from time to time don't we And the way you get your heart right is to humble yourself before God, ask forgiveness, ask for him to help you, and begin to hate the sin of pride. Pride is such a big deal to God that we need to destroy it before it destroys us. The reason God hates pride, the reason it's a big deal to him, is he knows it will destroy us. And out of his love as a good and kind father, he knows we should stay away from it. So what is this evil thing called pride that we're talking about? Tim Keller defines it like this. Pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. It's a dependence on self for all that we need. And it can so easily tempt Christians where all of a sudden we stop thinking about the things of God because we are immersed with what's in front of us. It's self-reliance, self-dependence. I want to address something here. Um, I remember talking to a young man who said he never, ever heard his dad say, I'm proud of you. And his dad said, because they grew up in the church... And they were taught that pride is a sin. And so he never said, I'm proud to you, to his kids. That's not the sin of pride. Moms, dads, friends, family, tell your loved ones you're proud of them. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm proud of you is a statement of delight. It's like what God the Father said to God the Son, Jesus, at Jesus' baptism, where he said, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. So tell your loved ones you're proud of them. This is different. The sin of pride is this illusion that we can run our own lives and find our own self-worth apart from God. Pride in the Christian silently says, I don't need God. We would never voice it like that, but it's, creeps up on us and slips into our hearts self-dependence and self-reliance eventually leads to self-promotion now the opposite of pride is humility humility is knowing who we truly are and knowing who god truly is It's expressed in a dependence upon God in all of life. C.S. Lewis quoted it like this. He said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Humility bows to God and says, I need you, and asks God for help. The life of pride always leads to brokenness. The life of humility always leads to wholeness. The life of pride always leads to brokenness. And the life of humility always leads to wholeness. If we humble ourselves before God, our souls grow into this flourishing wisdom that leads our entire life to wholeness. In the rest of this passage, we see that James gives us kind of four crossroads or four ways to live where we can take the path of brokenness or we can take the path of wholeness. And I want us to come to each of these four intersections today. The first one we see in number one is the wholeness of heaven and the brokenness of earth. They confront us and we can go one of two ways. Look at verses 14 to 18. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, in quotes, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish promotion, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, Submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. These verses show us two divergent paths. One is shaped by the wholeness of heaven. We see that in verse 17. Wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. Then we see the opposite of the way to live in verses 14 to 15. Harboring bitter envy, selfish ambition in your hearts. Such ways do not come down from heaven, but they are earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. So James is painting this dichotomy. There's this beauty and a wisdom that's from above, and it's set directly opposed to and against the wisdom and ways of this world which is from below. And look at verse 16. Where you have envy, selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. He's addressing the heart. When you have disorder in every evil practice externally, you have envy and selfish ambition in the heart. And then James implores us to take the way of heavenly wisdom and he focuses on one particular trait that is godly, and that's the trait of peacemaking. In the letter of James, James mirrors Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and on the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. People who foster peace, wholeness, not division. I remember when I was in my late teens, early 20s, there was a radio program on, and it was called The Bible Answer Man. And people would call with all these Bible questions, and and this guy would also um, cut down and point out every bad doctrine of books he read and things he saw, and he would just shred these people to bits. And I remember talking to my pastor about it. My pastor said, "The problem with that program is right here in James 3:17 because the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere." Even when we confront, we have to confront with the goal of peacemaking, with kindness, Divisions exist amongst people all around us. I don't have to tell you that. And now we live in a world where you can no longer just disagree with somebody. If you disagree with them, then you must hate them. That's the setup the world has us in. And as Christians, we can't take that bait. We can lovingly disagree without hatred. In this kind of world... We must be led as Christians not to divided actions that come from a divided heart, but to actions that stand for truth, but treat people with kindness and respect and love. Because of Jesus, we do everything we can to live at peace with all people. It doesn't always happen, but we do all that we can to make it happen. One of the best things that ever happened to me In seminaries, I met a man who was a professor named Dr. Jim Pluteman. Jim Pluterman is a man that I look at and I say he's probably as close to Christ-like living as I ever saw. I liked him so much, I said to my wife, You have to come and audit this class and take this class with me to see this guy. He was the type of guy who wanted to give every student that he had encouragement, love care. I remember one time he, I was dealing with a really difficult thing and he heard about it and he stopped me in the hall while a classroom of 40 or 50 people were waiting for him to lecture and he stayed there and asked me a whole bunch of questions about how I was doing and then prayed for me. He was a mentor and he took me to different things that he had to do in the seminary and I'll never forget one time we went to this big lunch and they had it and they had all the professors from the seminary there, and I was sitting with Dr. Pluteman at this lunch, and there's all these people who are 4,000 times more smarter than me, which isn't that hard to accomplish, but they were sitting around, and, and then they said, at your tables, go around and share what you teach. And these people were saying things I didn't even know existed. Some would say, I teach systematic theology. I teach Hebrew. I teach biblical Greek, I teach evangelism. And they got to Dr. Pluteman, and he said, I teach students. And it was everything flipped. And that's how he lived his life. He was this humble, kind person. He was pure, not in the sense of being sinless, but in the sense of being so wholly devoted to God that he was able to be devoted to others in love. There wasn't a two-souled heart within him. He had one heart united to God that allowed him to love others the way that Jesus would. James presents us with another intersection and a way to live, and that's number two, the wholeness of God and the brokenness of God. Of the world. Now James gets really intense here in the beginning of chapter four. Look at the first four verses of James four. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Verse 4 is a perfect definition of brokenness. Anyone who is a friend of the world is an enemy of God and finds themselves broken, double-minded, 2 souled versus a whole follower of Jesus who is fully devoted on God and is following him. Keep in mind in these verses, he's addressing Christians in churches. He's not talking about people who are far from God. He's talking about the church. He's talking about people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but there's this brokenness and division in almost every line of verses 1 to 4. You see desires that battle within you, selfish desire that leads to death, jealousy that leads to fights and quarrels. This leads to these people either not ever asking God for help or not even noticing that he's there and they ask, or they ask for the wrong things. This is a description of a follower of Jesus who is not friends with God but friends with the world and the world's ways. James is describing Christians who say they're all about God but then they embrace behaviors that belong to the very things that God says to stay away from. And the term he gives them is adulterers, breaking the faithful relationship. They're marked by the brokenness of the world. But then something unbelievable happens. In the midst of the intensity of the first four verses, of defining what brokenness is and labeling it, the people who participate in this is adulterers. You're ready for God to bring the hammer to judge this, but something unbelievable happens that James wants to blow us away with in verse five. How does God deal with these adulterers who are unfaithful to Him? Verse five. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? This is not the language of condemnation, abandonment, rejection, revenge, which adultery deserves. This is a language of love, finding a way to make the relationship whole again to those who are humble in wanting to do that. We should notice the word jealously here. When we hear the word jealously, we often think negative. But here the word jealously describes how God yearns for us, how God longs for us, how God wants to be near us. It can't be sinful jealously because God is perfect. And when it says he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us, it's an expression of loving ownership of us, his people. That's why when we turn into the world's ways and leave God, it's adultery because there's this loving ownership, this loving identity that he gives upon us as his children. And when we leave, there's this brokenness that happens. And now James is reminding us that because of the cross and the union we have with Christ, we have God residing in us as his people. We are his. We belong to him. That is what makes the embracing of the world so terrible. But it also is what makes his love so incredible and astonishing. That when we come back to him, he accepts us. When we wander astray and return, he brings us back. He will not let us go. He loves us and he is able and willing to receive us and forgive us when we've lost our way. He welcomes us back when we humbly return. And you know what he does? He gives us more grace. Look at verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, that self-reliant pride, but shows favor to the humble. James calls us to turn and repent from the world's ways. He's causing these Christians who are double-minded to turn and repent from their foolish ways. We turn from our selfish ways and we turn to God and we find life and love and a God who says, I will bring you back. We can turn to a gracious God even in our brokenness. And James gives us pointers on how to do that verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. True repentance is knowing what we did was wrong and admitting it. And saying it's wrong. End of story. No ifs, ands, or buts. No because of this and because of that. No, God what I did was wrong forgive me. That's what repentance looks like. You know, God loves it when we say what is true about ourselves. God loves it when we come to that place of openness and honesty when we're not playing games anymore. He knows the truth anyway, but he loves it when we arrive to that place where we can Be vulnerable before God, lay it all out, and say, I was wrong. No camouflage, no shadows, no hiding, no rationalization, just truth. I was wrong and I need you. It's that humble posture that draws us into His grace, it's that humble posture that draws us into His loving presence. When you have that kind of humility, an ocean of grace awaits you. One of our church fathers said this back in the early first century, whoever can weep over themselves for one hour, broken humility, is greater than the one who is able to teach the whole world. Whoever recognizes the depth of their own frailty is greater than the one who sees visions of angels. There's a humility that leads us to grace, that brings us into God's presence. To be with God broken in humility is better than to do any godly act. Number three, the next intersection we see is there's a wholeness of fellowship with the church, or we can live in the brokenness of division. Look at verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. This is saying that we should protect one another, not tear each other apart. People who live in wholeness protect each other. People who live in brokenness divide. And he says, do not slander or speak against. To do that is to embrace the brokenness of division. How much better for us to foster spirits of unity by what we say and how we treat Christian brothers and sisters. We are to embrace a way of life that protects one another with our words and builds one another up. One way we speak against one another according to the text is through these things called slander and flattery. Do you know the difference between slander and flattery? Slander is saying something about someone behind their back that you would never, ever say to their face. Flattery is saying something to their face that you would never, ever, ever say behind their back. Slander is saying something... Behind one's back, that you would never ever say to their face, and flattery is saying to their face what you would never say about them behind their back. Both of these speak against one another. Both of these are symptoms of brokenness that pull the body of Christ apart. Finally, the last intersection we find is the wholeness of God's law and the brokenness of selfishness. Look at verse 11 again. Do not speak against a brother or sister, or judges them. Or judges them. Uh, judges it. Oh wait, I'm sorry. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister, or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, Jesus Christ. But the one who is able to say, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge? Your neighbor. Jesus makes a big deal about this. And the reason he makes a big deal about this, and the reason James makes a big deal about this, is because when you offend someone or speak against someone, you're not just offending or speaking against them, you're speaking and offending God in his ways. Have you ever been picked on by a bully? One of the stories in Pam's family that always brings a smile to my face that I enjoy is when Pam was really young, maybe first, second, third grade, I don't know exact age, a bully picked up, picked on her. And you know what happened in the playground? Her older brother, Greg, three years older, saw the bully picking on Pam and walked up and said, hey, are you picking on her? No, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't picking on you. Yeah, you better not pick on her. Right. What James wants us to understand here is that every single person we interact with has a big brother watching out for them. And when you offend them, you offend that big brother, and that's God. God is watching out, has the back of every single person. So why would we do something that would not only cut down that person but offend God? James wants us to go through life when we see people and understand that someone bigger is attached to them. In these last verses, James is asking us, who do we think we really are? The truth is, we make very poor judges. We only have half the information. We are terrible critics. And we can be very unloving and unforgiving to our neighbors. Theologian Marislav Vol says this Forgiveness flounders because I exclude myself from the community of believers. Once I think I am better than everybody else and pull myself out of the community of sinners, I point the finger and I no longer forgive. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ that fulfills the law God does not speak about us in demeaning ways to other people, ever ever. Instead, he forgives our sin. He covers our offenses. He has boundless amounts of grace and mercy that he eagerly showers upon us. All of our sins, all of our failures, all of our faults are taken to the cross. And at the cross, they are paid for. And they no longer have power because of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus buries our sins and offenses in the ocean of God's grace and God's forgetfulness. He gives grace to humble, repentant sinners. The humble, repentant sinner finds the judge of the universe, all of a sudden becomes their savior, their friend, and the lover of their soul. That's Jesus. Jesus. If we summarize verses 5 and 6 in this letter, in a few sentences, it would be this. God jealously longs for you, no matter what you have done, and he greatly desires to forgive you and pour his boundless grace into your life. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. When we realize that, pride in our hearts is killed. When we realize that, a door empowered by humility opens to let wholeness in. Maybe the best thing we can do as we close is just to spend some time and have you look and reflect on that sentence. I want to give you a time of silence and I encourage you to maybe just read that. A couple times and let it sink in or maybe you want to spend time talking to God in the silence of your heart but I want to give you space to let this sink down deeper so I'm going to give you some silence and either reflect on that talk to God and then I will close us in prayer